0: Welcome to this edition of Back to Basics with guest pastor Char Broderson,
1: How do we make sure that our gatherings don't just become social events, where we just see our friends, we kind of exchange niceties and pleasantries, but we are never changed, we are never transformed through our gatherings together. This is a danger for every Christian community.
0: Today on Back to Basics, Pastor Char Broderson continues our study in the book of 1 Corinthians. Join us as Pastor Char begins his teaching on 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 34, in part two of a message titled Instruction for the Worshiping Community Living Out the Prophetic Vision. now, here's Pastor Char.
1: So, I don't think I have to remind you, but I will anyway, teaching through 1 Corinthians with the theme of everyday discipleship. And again, it's always good for me to be reminded, for you to be reminded, that this church was a local church in the midst of the Roman Empire. And just like any church at any time in any place, there were ways in which God's spirit was being manifested, the power of the gospel, the life of the kingdom of the heavens. And there were ways that there were just totally glaring inconsistencies with the way of Jesus and the way of God's kingdom. Remember, it had been reported to Paul that the church was having all sorts of issues and divisions. They were pitting one another against one another. There were sexual issues and spiritual issues and social issues. And so Paul writes to them and it feels like this laundry list, but really it is just a symptom of a greater issue. And that is that the Corinthians had failed to realize the implications of the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. And you know what? We are not immune to that either. None of us are. And I'm actually very excited to bring this word to you today because this passage is really all about how we recalibrate our lives according to that very same gospel, the gospel of Jesus Christ and him crucified. I love this quote from Leslie Newbegin. It's helped me really frame our studies through 1 Corinthians. But he says this, The choice of the church in every age will always be, will our identity be shaped by scripture or by culture, by the biblical story or the cultural story? I said to you guys last week that Paul, starting in verse 2 of chapter 11, turns his attention to the worship gathering of the Corinthian church. And he's gonna address varied issues in their gatherings all the way through chapter 14. He begins by talking about women and their dress and their appearance in the worshiping gathering. And then what we'll look at today, he talks about the use and abuse of the Lord's Supper. And then in chapters 12 through 14, he will talk about the use and abuse of the gifts. But I think a really good question to ask ourselves is, you know, what is the positive thing that Paul is trying to drive home? Or what is Paul's standard or North Star that he gives to this church in their gatherings? And though it's not very clear in the first section, I think when we take this entire section, chapters 11 through 14, in its totality, we see what Paul has in mind is what's called the proleptic vision. We talked about this a little bit last week. But proleptic is a grammatical term In which a future event is so certain to come, so sure, that it is spoken of in the present tense. Remember, the church is called to be, as Eugene Peterson says, a colony of heaven in the country of death. The church is to live out now what we will be. We're to live the kingdom of the heavens now, just as Jesus describes in the Sermon on the Mount. That would be the proleptic vision. I love what Lee Camp says in his book, Scandalous Witness. He says, the coming kingdom entails a shared abundance and unencumbered generosity. Thus, we practice generosity and hospitality even now, in the present. The coming kingdom entails the unlearning of war. Thus, we learn the counsels of peace now, The coming kingdom entails the righting of all wrongs by truth-telling and suffering love. Thus, we tell the truth, practice suffering love, and right wrongs now. It's that same vision that Peter cast to the church in his first epistle where he tells them to grab onto hold tightly to the living hope that we have through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, that they are to live out presently the future reality and hope of the resurrection life in Jesus or the new creation. And so this is really what Paul has in mind in this section. He wants us to live out the life of the kingdom now. And I think that this is clearly seen that 1 Corinthians 13 is kind of the apex of this section where Paul talks to us about the supremacy of love. And I love that N.T. Wright tells us this. He says, you know, for the Christian, love is not just a duty, but love is our destiny. We're called to be imitators of the God who is love because one day we will be made like, completely, holy like the God who is love. And so we are called to live that out now. So let's talk about what was going on in the church in Corinth, in their gathering around the Lord's Supper. And then I want to cast a positive vision of what I believe the Lord is calling us to in our observance of the Lord's Supper. So first of all, Paul points out that this really, this gathering is the antithesis of the Lord's Supper. And he begins with this indictment. In the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. Can you imagine? Can you imagine Brian getting up on Sunday morning, looking out? I've noticed something, Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa. Our meetings, our gatherings together are doing more harm than they are doing good. This is quite the indictment. And how tragic to think that the gathering together of God's redeemed people could actually do more harm than do good. How, I mean, how does that even come about? I think one way, and I'm not gonna belabor this, but I think one way is that we forget what we are doing and we forget who we are. And so we're gonna talk about this morning. How do we remember Who we are? How do we continually remember what our gatherings are about? How do we make sure that our gatherings don't just become social events? Where we just see our friends, we kind of exchange niceties and pleasantries, and then we just go about our merry way. But we are never changed, we are never transformed, built up, exhorted matured through our gatherings together. This is a danger for every Christian community. So why are these gatherings here in Corinth doing more harm than good? Well, Paul says, he brings up the issue of divisions in the church once again, but these do not seem to be what he addressed earlier in the letter, but are specifically social economic divisions that had arisen in the church community. And they specifically center around the gathering together to observe the Lord's Supper. So, because of this, Paul makes this wild statement. This is my paraphrase. It is, in fact, not the Lord's Supper that you are observing. Again, what an indictment, right? To look around and the bread is being passed, the cup is being passed, and Paul's like, no, this is not. This is not the Lord's Supper. I don't know what you think you're doing here. I don't know what you think you're actually practicing or how you're actually honoring the Lord, but this is not the Lord's Supper. You know, this takes me back to prophets. When God spoke to the children of Israel and he says, I hate your sacrifices. These aromas, these instances, they are a stench in my nostrils, I don't care for any of this. I want it all torn down and taken away. But instead, let there be a flood of justice. Let mercy roll down. See, God in the Old Testament is speaking through the prophets the same thing that Paul is saying here. This is not sacrifice that is pleasing to the Lord. This is not the Lord's Supper that they are observing. What you are doing is so out of line with and is the antithesis of the way of Jesus and what this meal is all about. That's what Paul is saying. So what were they doing? It seems that the church community was getting together for some sort of private supper club in their weekly church gatherings in the name of the Lord's Supper. The Net Bible says everyone proceeds with his own or her own supper. So just imagine with me a kind of BYOS, bring your own supper to the gathering event. That's kind of what it sounds like is happening here. There were these little supper clubs that had turned into socioeconomic divisions and distinctions. The result was... Some were having these elaborate feasts with their social group, their in crowd, their friends, while others had nothing, brought nothing, so they were hungry. Others were getting drunk, possibly because that's all that was left was the alcohol. It was a total humiliation of the poor of the church community. And so Paul says that by doing this, you are despising the church of God through humiliating those who have nothing. That is the poor. So you see, the Corinthian church, through their practice and observance, were making this meal say the exact opposite of what Jesus was saying and doing in the Lord's Supper. Paul from here walks them through the tradition that he had passed down to the church in Corinth, taking them back to the night of the Last Supper and to Jesus's call to remembrance. And from here, he exhorts the church not to eat the bread or drink the cup in an unworthy manner. Now we'll unpack Paul's teaching and the direction, the positive direction that he gives to the church in a moment. But I wanna talk for a second about what does it mean to eat in an unworthy manner? And I believe In its most simplified form, an unworthy manner would be a lifestyle or practice that is out of sync with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus and his kingdom. I'll say that again. An unworthy manner would be a lifestyle or practice that is out of sync with the self-giving, sacrificial way of Jesus and his kingdom. And so Paul exhorts them, examine yourselves. Why? Well, because those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, most likely this is a reference not just to Jesus himself, but also to the church. Jesus is the head of the church. The church is his body. It's a reference to Jesus and his people whom he is directly connected with. He says, those who do not discern the body eat and drink judgment on themselves. And that is why many among you are sick. And a number have died. What the heck is going on here? Anybody read like those passages in the Bible and you're just like, wow, like record stops. Like what just happened? Like there's that passage of Judah and Tamar and you're like, how is this in the Bible? Right, it's just so jacked up. So what is going on here? Some interpret this to mean, right, well, okay, let me back up for a second. What is going on here? Well, clearly, there is some sort of plague or judgment happening in the church in Corinth because of their abuse of the Lord's Supper. Why? What exactly is the deal? What's the problem? Well, Paul tells them to examine themselves. So some have interpreted this to mean unless... In your observance of the Lord's Supper, you confess all your sin before partaking. You are in danger of the judgment of God, drinking or eating in an unworthy manner. Therefore, if you cannot take it in a worthy manner without making everything right first, don't take it. And if you're not a Christian, definitely don't take it. Like we don't want to call the morgue, right? Or the paramedics or whatever. It's not what we're gathered for. And so through this interpretation, right, you, maybe you've been in a church practice before and right before the communion meal is passed out or you're invited to come forward, the pastor says, oh, and just by the way, if you're not a Christian here or if you have not confessed your sin, we highly recommend that you do not partake of the bread and the cup. And usually they don't say, because we don't want any deaths in the room or anything like that. But like, there's just this like, what, what why? What's going on here? And though this interpretation is popular, I don't believe it matches the context of what Paul is saying. Remember, the issue in Corinth is a socioeconomic issue of righteousness and justice. Remember, he says, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? That's what's going on here. So it seems rather what's happening is a judgment from God on the way the Corinthians are treating the poor among them. A judgment that results in sickness and in death. Wow, well, okay, that's still very extreme. And char, that smells of the God of wrath and judgment that does not square well with my understanding of Jesus who is full of grace and truth. Yeah, this is is a difficult passage. Let me say that this picture here is actually consistent with what we find throughout the whole biblical narrative. God, Yahweh, takes the abuse, injustices, and unrighteous acts against the weak, the poor, the fatherless, the widow, and the foreigner, deadly serious. In almost all of the judgments pronounced in Scripture, thinking specifically the prophet's, The concern is how people live and lived in relation to these groups of people. Are they doing right? Are they doing righteousness is always the question to those concerned. Or are they committing injustice and unrighteousness to the poor? This was a major issue in the days of Jeremiah and a reason why The Babylonian captivity happened, one of the reasons why. So it's an understatement that the poor and marginalized hold a precious place in the heart of God. This can be seen all throughout the law, the prophets, and the life and ministry of Jesus. Finally, listen to the judgment pronounced by James upon those who do injustice to the poor among them. Just listen to this. Listen, you rich people weep and wail because of the misery that is coming on you. Your wealth has rotted and moths have eaten your clothes. Your gold and silver are corroded. Their corrosion will testify against you and eat your flesh like fire. You have hoarded wealth in the last days. Look, The wages you failed to pay the workers who mowed your fields are crying out against you. The cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord Almighty. You have lived on earth in luxury and self-indulgence. You have fattened yourselves in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the innocent one who was not opposing you. The issue in Corinth, was an abuse and a neglect of the poor among them. And this is why the judgment of God was coming upon them. Therefore, Paul says, when you gather to eat, you should all eat together. There should be none of these distinctions among of you. This should be a feast of abundance, of hospitality, A table of oneness, of justiceness, righteousness, and honor. It should be a table that practices the way of Jesus. Sometimes I think it's easy for us to stand in judgment against the failures of certain characters or communities in the biblical narrative. But I think a kind of criticism like this shows a lack of humility and self-awareness because we're all in danger of theological drift. We're all in danger of spiritual amnesia if we do not keep the gospel and Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection and the hope of the new creation at the center of our community and our gatherings. We must And I believe one of the main ways that Jesus has offers to do this for his church is through this meal that we are observing this morning. Through this meal, that just sounds so strange. Well, let's just talk a little bit about this meal and what it was and what it is to be for the church. Now, of course, in ancient Near East, and especially in the scripture, a meal was never just a meal a time to simply ingest food and quench thirst. Now, I'm not saying that people didn't just snack or eat as they went about, but if you had a meal, a meal carried deep significance. It was about kinship, friendship, and oneness. It was about hospitality. I mean, this is why Paul is saying you cannot share in the table of the Lord and of demons because there is something deeper afoot here. It was about hospitality. It celebrated covenant and promise. It's significant in scripture that the first meal ever mentioned being prepared and eaten is a meal between Abraham and Yahweh. Genesis 18 verses 3 through 8. The dictionary of biblical imagery says, in the Near East culture, meals themselves, the food served, the manner in which it was done and by whom carried socially significant coded communication. The more formal the meal, the more loaded with messages. The messages had to do with honor, social rank in the family and community, belonging, purity, and holiness. Among God's chosen people, Israel, meals became ways of experiencing and enjoying God's presence and provision. See, when the early church gathered together for worship, it looked and probably felt very different from our worship gatherings today, and especially the way that we observe the Lord's Supper. Theirs was a true meal in a home, and in that meal, the bread and wine would be present, and at some point in time, Attention would be drawn to these elements and their deep significance. They represent Jesus' body that was broken and his blood that was shed for the forgiveness of sin for this community, this collective. There was a family idea present, a oneness present, a communal sense and communal identity about this observance. The Lord's Supper was really a ceremonial meal of remembrance, but we'll talk more about that in a bit. Now, of course, our practice of observing the Lord's Supper is much different in outward context, right? We're not in someone's house. There's no meal being served. And some of you might still even be curious or confused as to why we eat a little bit of cracker or cardboard wafer and have the smallest glass of juice in the world as part of our morning ritual of worship, I've got some funny stories about how I was holding on to communion years ago, and I was just like, "The cup is so small, my hand is so big, the cup is so small, my hand is so big." And like, <clears throat> I just dropped it and just spilled it all over me, and just I missed communion. What is this all about? Well, let's talk about this meal. And I hope by God's grace, we will capture the powerful significance of this practice and be transformed by it. Now, I believe the Lord's Supper points us backward and inward, forward and outward. So backward and inward. In order to correct the Corinthians' abuse of the Lord's Supper, Paul reminds them of the very night it all happened.
0: For the month of March, Back to Basics Radio is offering a book titled The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian. Can a Christian become demon-possessed? Is there really an unseen spiritual battle behind large-scale world events and the details of individual lives? If you've ever wondered about the unseen spiritual realm and its influence upon the physical world, And this month's book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, will answer these very questions. If you want to better understand the spiritual battle that we're involved in as Christians, how to recognize the tactics of the enemy, and how to live a victorious Christian life, you need to get this month's resource from Back to Basics. The book, The Powers of Darkness and the People of God by Pastor Brian, is our gift to say thank you for your donation to Back to Basics. So we encourage you to call us right now at 1-800-733-6443 or visit us online at backtobasicsradio.com. We'd also like to remind you that all of our other resources are waiting for you at backtobasicsradio.com or by calling our request line at 1-800-733-6443. That's 1-800-733-6443. Our desire is to encourage you in your daily walk with God. We'll continue next time with more valuable insights from our guest pastor, Char Broderson, as we study together in the book of 1 Corinthians. Back to Basics is the preaching and teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.